This morning, we're going to continue our Advent series together by, by looking at a portion of Matthew chapter 12. So if you have your Bible with you today, I'd encourage you to join me there. In just a few moments, I'm actually going to begin our reading at verse 14, because I think it helps set a little context for us around this passage. As you find your place in the Gospel of Matthew, I'll remind you that our overarching theme for Advent or Christmas is light and life to all he brings. This phrase is taken from Charles Wesley's carol, Hark, the Herald Angels Sing. It reminds us that Jesus brings light into our darkness and life to those who are dead. In short, Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners and the promised Messiah who will make all things right. As we make our way into Matthew chapter 12 this morning, I'd like to thank the elders for giving me the privilege of preaching these first three weeks of Advent. I'd also like to remind you that Dr. Ligon Duncan will be with us next week for our lessons in carol service, and our own Steve Dickey will be preaching at the upcoming Christmas Eve service. Let us hear now the living Word of God from Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, that's Jesus, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Will you pray with me one more time? Father, as we come to your word, as we consider that the beauty, the power, the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that in this time, we would be captured by Jesus. That we would be overwhelmed by the real, living, breathing person of Jesus. That your Spirit would move in such a way that we are brought from darkness to light and from death to life. Transform us, God, by your grace and truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have noticed there in your bulletin that the title of this sermon this morning is Jesus, Our Gentle Justice. As we make our way through this passage in Matthew 12, we're obviously going to talk a lot about Jesus Christ, and we're going to talk about the way He he brings justice to and secures justice for His people. I'd like to begin this sermon in a very different place, though. I want to talk to you for just a minute about chess. Most of you know that that chess is a rather complicated, multifaceted, confusing kind of game. All of the pieces move independently of one another, but you have to use the pieces together to win the game. 
Most of us also know that the queen is the most powerful, most versatile, and therefore the most important piece on the board. On October 17, 1956, a promising but relatively unknown 13-year-old sat down to play a game of chess against Donald Byrne. Byrne was a top 10 player and would go on to be an international master. Less than 20 moves into that particular contest, the 13-year-old sitting across from Donald Byrne had a huge problem. Byrne, the chess master, had captured his queen. We're going to come back to that, but, but enough about chess for now. In the passage before us today, we find Jesus fully engaged in his Galilean ministry. In Matthew chapter 4 through 11, Jesus has been preaching and teaching and confronting, challenging the religious status quo. In the first half of Matthew chapter 12, which we didn't read, we actually get all three of these things. Some teaching, healing, and the challenging. It's all rolled up into one. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is tussling with the Pharisees, specifically over the Sabbath day. In verse 8, Jesus boldly declares that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. In verses 9 through 13, Jesus breaks clearly with the Pharisaical tradition and heals a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus isn't pulling any punches here. It's almost like he's trying intentionally to pick a fight. And the Pharisees, they get the message. That's why we get verse 14. Read it with me again. But the Pharisees went out from the synagogue and conspired against him, that's Jesus, how to destroy him. Our main focus this morning is Jesus' response to this obvious threat. The religious power brokers are upset, and now they're out for blood. So what is Jesus going to do? And what, what does any of this have to do with us today? As we try to answer these questions, we're, we're going to look at this passage with around three big points. The agent of justice, the objects of justice, and the outworking of justice. So first, let's consider the agent of justice. Jesus actually responds to the Pharisees in verses 15 and 16, but his response may actually surprise you. Look back at the beginning of verse 15 again. Jesus, aware of this, aware of the threat, withdrew from there. Jesus withdraws from the synagogue. So he kicks the hornet's nest, and then he runs away. But there's more here. As Jesus withdraws from this particular town, he's followed by a large group of needy, hurting people. Not surprisingly, Jesus heals all of them. But then we get verse 16. And Jesus ordered them not to make him known. So Jesus is running away and keeping secrets. This all feel, feels kind of odd and inconsistent. This certainly isn't the kind of behavior we've come to expect from Jesus at this point in his ministry. But Matthew, the gospel writer, makes an important connection for us. 
Jesus' elusive behavior here is both intentional and incredibly significant. Ultimately, all of the misdirection and all of the privacy was to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. What follows for us in verses 18 through 21 is a quotation of Isaiah 42. As we continue to think about the agent of justice, I I really want to look carefully at verse 18. You see, near the beginning of this prophecy, we're introduced to the Lord's servant. Isaiah 42 is actually the first of four servant songs in that book. In Isaiah's prophecies, the servant of the Lord is the one who fulfills all of God's covenant promises and the one who secures everlasting salvation for all of God's covenant people. The servant of the Lord is is actually given four specific descriptors in verse 18. You may have caught them as I read earlier. First, the servant is chosen by God. So the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh, has handpicked or hand-selected this specific individual for this specific task. Second, the servant is beloved by God. The Lord has placed His eternal, undying, covenant affection upon His servant. The relationship is meaningful. It's familial. It's permanent. Third, the servant is well-pleasing to God. So the servant of the Lord fully satisfies the demands, the real high demands of God's righteousness and holiness. This servant fulfills the law. He is perfectly obedient. He finds acceptance in God's presence because he is well-pleasing. Finally, the servant is anointed by God. Near the end of verse 18, we learn that the Spirit of the Lord is upon the servant of the Lord. This servant then is filled with supernatural power, supernatural blessing as he fulfills and accomplishes his appointed work. So the servant of the Lord is chosen by God, loved by God, well-pleasing to God, and anointed by God. If you're even the least bit familiar with the larger story of the Bible, then a lot of pieces should start falling into place for you. This servant is that seed of a woman promised to Adam and Eve. This servant is the true son of Abraham who will bless all the nations of the earth. This servant is the everlasting king from the line of David. He is the final prophet and the perfect priest. This servant of the Lord is none other than the Messiah, the one chosen and appointed by God for the work of salvation. Here's the big point Matthew is making in our passage. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is well-pleasing to God and appointed by God. Jesus, then, is the chosen one. Most of us know that pop culture is, is really pretty obsessed with the chosen one trope. Anakin Skywalker, who eventually becomes Darth Vader, is the chosen one in the Star Wars saga. 
Neo is the chosen one in the mind-bending world of the Matrix. There's Harry Potter and Ender, Jonas from The Giver, and Eleven in Stranger Things. At the end of the day, every single one of these characters is responsible for a kind of salvation. The chosen one saves others from evils like the dark side and he who must not be named. Have you ever stopped to think about why we're so drawn to these characters and these stories? Ultimately, it is because each and every one of them reflects something deeper and something more profound, something that's actually real. These stories are echoes or reminders of the true chosen one, of the ultimate Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me well. The Bible in front of you is not a fairy tale. It is the very Word of God. Jesus is not some legendary, albeit homely, semi-historical figure. He is the promised servant of the Lord. Look at it again. This passage before us this morning isn't asking a question or expressing an opinion. It's making a clear statement. Jesus is the Messiah, and as such, he is our only hope of eternal salvation. Jesus, then, is the agent of justice. Our second point this morning focuses on the objects of justice. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. He is the agent of justice. But, but what kinds of people does Jesus move toward? Verse 15 actually gives us our first clue. The many who follow Jesus away from the synagogue need what? Healing. Don't miss the obvious point. Jesus moves toward and saves the sickly and the broken. Verses 18 and 21 both specifically mention the Gentiles. So Jesus, the servant of the Lord, also moves toward the nations, the outsiders, the pagans, the other people. In verse 20, we're introduced to a loaded metaphor. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. We're going to revisit this verse later, but, but know this. Jesus moves toward those who have been beaten up and beaten down. He moves toward those who are barely hanging on toward those who don't have anything left, and toward those who are used up and burnt out. Finally, I want you to look back at verses 18 and 20. This gets to the very heart of the sermon, because the servant of the Lord, he preaches justice and he provides justice. You see, Jesus moves toward those who need vindication and a reckoning. He moves toward men and women and boys and girls who have been abused and mistreated and victimized and exploited. So ultimately, what kinds of people does Jesus move toward? He moves toward real people. 
He moves toward people who have been chewed up and spit out by a broken world. He moves toward people who have broken hearts and broken bodies. He moves toward the rejected, toward the rebellious, and toward those who are considered the very refuse of society. And that is good news for us this morning. I'm actually curious. Do any of you in this room know the longest recorded one-on-one interaction of Jesus in the Bible? I know this is weird for us, but that's not a rhetorical question. Would anybody like to venture a guess? The longest recorded interaction between Jesus and one other person in the Bible. Do you know? It's the woman at the well in John chapter 4. What do you know about that woman? Well, first, she's a woman. In the first century, that meant that you were a second-class citizen at best and most likely considered property. Second, she's a Samaritan. To the Jews, this woman is even worse than a Gentile. She's a half-breed and a constant reminder of a past the Jews desperately tried to forget. This Samaritan woman, oh, it gets better. She's also been married five times. Now, when you and I read that detail in John chapter 4, we might be tempted, because of our culture, to think this woman is some kind of prostitute or just a loose woman. But we need to remember Women couldn't file for, file for divorce in that culture. Only men had that right. So this woman, for whatever reason, has actually been thrown away and publicly humiliated five, five separate times. Let's keep digging. <laughs> because when she interacts with Jesus around that well, she's living with a man that she's not married to. She knows that's culturally unacceptable and biblically unallowable. That's why she's drawing water. Go back and read John 4 this afternoon at the sixth hour. Drawing water was hard, strenuous, time-consuming work. Nobody in their right mind would go to draw water in the heat of the day. Most people drew water in the cool of the evening or the cool of the morning. So what is this woman doing? She's trying to avoid her shame by avoiding the crowds. But what does Jesus do? He puts Himself in this woman's way. He moves toward her. He pursues her. He confronts her. He forgives her. He comforts her. He transforms her heart, her life, and her future. You look up here at me. If this morning you are broken and bruised, if you have been discarded and rejected, if you are desperate and hopeless and filled with shame, then you actually have a reason to be excited this morning because Jesus Christ, the divinely appointed agent of justice, moves toward people just like you. He loves people just like you. He lived and he died for people just like you. His kingdom is overflowing with people just like you.
This passage of Scripture, it forces us to recognize that Jesus is the servant of the Lord. But if we're being honest, it also forces us to admit that we are the people who need the servant's promised work. Christianity is not a clean and neat religion. Christianity is messy and earthy and bloody. But be encouraged. Because Jesus didn't show up to straighten your tie or to freshen your makeup. He came to strip us down to nothing so he could clothe us in his everlasting perfect righteousness. Our final point this morning is the outworking of justice. This is where we'll learn how Jesus, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, how Jesus, the agent of justice, actually accomplishes the work of salvation for needy people just like us. As we work through this final point, we're also going to tie several loose ends together in a way that I think really helps us appreciate the majesty and beauty of Jesus. Matthew and obviously Isaiah describe the work or ministry of Jesus in several different ways. First, it's a ministry of proclamation. The Messiah proclaims justice to the Gentiles in verse 18. Now you might think, well, big deal. It's just words. But remember, Jesus is the chosen, anointed servant of the Lord. He is very God of very God. And when God speaks, things happen. The Word of God always, always accomplishes its purpose. Here in Matthew 12, Jesus proclaims justice. So what should we expect? Justice. Second, We learn that the ministry of Jesus is a peaceful or quiet ministry. Look at verse 19 again. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. At first glance, that that looks like a contradiction. Because in verse 18, the servant proclaims. But now in verse 19, he doesn't cry aloud. How are we supposed to reconcile those two statements? Well, the picture here is not a silent Jesus. It's a Jesus who communicates in a metered, humble way. We learn that Jesus isn't going to arrogantly shout people down or constantly engage in contentious public debate. Third, the ministry of Jesus is a gentle, a gentle ministry. Go back to that metaphor in verse 20 about a bruised reed and a smoldering wick. The servant of the Lord is all about justice and righteousness, but he's also patient, considerate, and kind, especially with the fragile and the suffering. We need to look at the Word of God and And we need to believe the Word of God. Jesus is actually and really and perfectly sympathetic toward the broken and the burnout. Your heart, mm. this morning your heart and your mind and your experiences might be telling you 
That's all a lie. Look again. Jesus will not. Jesus cannot snap you in half or snuff you out. At the end of verse 21, we see a fourth aspect of Jesus' ministry. It's a ministry of hope. The servant of the Lord gives the Gentiles hope. He gives all of God's people hope. It's a short point, but it's one worth remembering. In Jesus Christ, we have real hope. There's just one final detail of Jesus' ministry described in this passage, and it's actually related very closely to this idea of hope. According to verse 20, the ministry of Jesus is a conclusive ministry. Look at that last phrase in verse 20. Until he brings justice to victory. Isaiah's prophecy, repeated here by Matthew, tells us that the servant of the Lord will work quietly and gently throughout most of time in history. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. He will not break the bruised reed or extinguish the smoking wick, but rest assured, because Jesus will bring justice to victory. He will finish the work. Final justice may not come tomorrow or next year or even in the next century, but at the end of all things, justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, will fully and finally address every single injustice. He will right every wrong. Never forget that Jesus Christ has the final word in all of human history, and that word is victory. Later this morning, we're going to sing joy to the world together. You may know this, you may not. Isaac Watts, who composed that hymn, he he didn't write joy to the world as a Christmas carol. Joy to the world is actually a second coming hymn. It's based on the messianic themes of Psalm 98. But at another level, it's incredibly appropriate to sing joy to the world during Advent. Why? Because all of the work of salvation, past, present, and future, it is all accomplished, it is all finished by one person, Jesus. Here again, the familiar words from Watts' third stanza. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Jesus is compassionate. He is gentle. He provides real help in the present to those who are affected by injustice. One of the beautiful things about Jesus is that his help often comes, I would argue it typically comes, in ways that are quiet and careful and simple and unseen. But make no mistake, because Jesus is also executing his sovereign plan of salvation with power and precision. 
he will restrain and conquer all his and our enemies. His blessings, they will flow as far as the curse is found. Jesus Christ, ultimately, in the end, he will dismantle and destroy the very source of injustice for his own glory and for the eternal good of his people. I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Fighting against injustice in this life is a good and necessary work. It is a work that we should take very seriously as the people of God. A work that we should enter into in every avenue of life. But we also need to recognize together that justice in the ultimate sense will never be secured by a political party. It will not be secured by a social rights group or by some great humanitarian effort. Perfect justice and final victory rest in the holy, omnipotent, gracious hands of Jesus. So today, if you are bruised and broken by the fall, if you see sin in you and around you, if you need, to quote Ellie Holcomb, a rescue and a reckoning, then by God's grace, you run to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus and hope in Jesus. You might remember me mentioning something about chess earlier today. At the beginning of the sermon, I talked about a game of chess that pitted a 13-year-old against the international master Donald Byrne. I also told you that Donald Byrne captured the teenager's queen less than 20 moves into that game. But here's what I didn't tell you. That 13-year-old was Bobby Fischer. And that game in 1956 is now called the Game of the Century. Here's why. Bobby Fischer didn't make a mistake. He didn't lose his queen to Donald Byrne. Fischer was in full control. He intentionally sacrificed his queen to orchestrate a subtle, quiet, but devastating attack. By move 38, it was all over. And literally, the world of chess would never be the same. Let's be honest, and I mean really honest. As Jesus works in our lives, he often confuses us. At times, he even exasperates us. His work seems slow and counterintuitive. It is quiet but here's what we know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jesus is not running away or hiding. Jesus is not trying to regroup or figure things out. Jesus Christ is constantly on the offensive in Matthew chapter 12, and he is still pressing forward this morning. Jesus Christ, in our lives, in our church, he is on the move. He is moving toward the needy toward the abused, toward the broken today. Jesus is saving the lost today. Jesus is transforming hearts and lives and families and churches and cultures today. Jesus is driving all of human history toward a definite and glorious future today. Jesus 
is bringing justice to victory today. And so today, during this Advent season, let us look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us lean upon the Lord Jesus Christ. May we trust in Christ and hope in Christ alone, for He is the servant of the Lord. He is the Messiah. He is our justice. Pray with me. Father, as we consider, as we look at, as we really contemplate the person of Jesus, Lord, we recognize, if only imperfectly, that he doesn't always make sense, but he's always good. And he is constantly at work for our good. Lord, I pray as we celebrate now the supper together as your people, that we would see the finished work of Jesus on our behalf and rejoice in the blessings that are ours as a result of that work. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.